0: Chapter 1, that's where we'll, or Chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning again. Romans Chapter 2. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you and uh, we say that we know this about ourselves. We are totally dependent on you. We need you for everything. <laughs> Certainly, uh, we need you to be delivered from sin both uh, for eternity as well as in our daily walk. We need you for everything. We need your word as well. Thank you for this wonderful gift that you've given us, your book. You're the source of it. It's God-breathed, and it's very profitable for us in so many ways. And so we pray now that as we open it, we look at what it has to say, that will go well beyond just looking at the words, considering them, that will go into life change in each of us. For the glory of your name. Help me to speak clearly, with confidence, conviction. But I pray most of all that you would work in each of our hearts. As you know, we need it. We ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. I think probably most of us would remember the movie series Back to the Future. In the very first one, when they, when uh, Marty McFly, was it wasn't Marty, was it? Was it Marty? Yeah. Went back in time. He keeps on using a word that catches the attention, particularly of the doctor. Heavy. he it? oh, that's heavy. And the doctor's like... Are things different in the future? I mean, does the, the whole composition of stuff changed. molecular makeup change where things are heavy? And it's, it's a word that, you know, came out of the 70s and 80s. Oh, that's heavy. Or you can say, that's deep. Same kind of idea. When I think of the book of Romans in particular, I think it's heavy. And it is deep. It is a, a teaching book. It truly is. It's not... Paul spending very much time uh, on his personal issues, and those attacking him, and all of that, while he constantly faced that. Th- this is his task, to explain the gospel to the readers in Rome. But God had a, a broader audience in mind, us, well, all, all the church, and unsaved people. He wants the gospel to be clear, but it's so deep. It's, Heavy, and this section that we're in, in particular, in Romans, is very heavy. It's not easy, actually, from my perspective, to preach on it because, like, it feels like I'm just taking a big sludge hammer, 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 hammer. And I know that you probably don't feel like you're being hammered, but it is the nature of this this section. It just is so hard to hear about God's wrath being poured out. Now, his wrath is being poured out because people are condemned for their sin, right? And that's why they need the gospel. You know that beautiful gospel that is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek? Because in it, the the righteousness of God or right relationship with God is revealed from faith, for faith begins with and ends with faith and And we need that gospel. People need the gospel because God's wrath is being and will be poured out against sinful people. And he started out in chapter 1, verse 18, talking about the unrighteous pagan idolaters that, you know, pretty much everyone say, yeah, they deserve it, God, pour your wrath out on them. I mean, they rejected the truth of God in creation. They rejected what was known about God. And they, they, they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. They became idolatrous, and so God gave them over to you know, the lust of their hearts, the evil passions, dishonorable passions, and that led to all kinds of sexual sins and all, much more than that. And then God gave them over to debased minds, and, and that just led to a long list of horrible, horribly wicked behaviors. And they not only did them, but they, they encouraged others to join in them. And we think, that's kind of our world today. Uh, from our perspective, we'd look and say, yeah, that's our world today. And then Paul, it's like he flips a switch, but he's not really flipping a switch. He's, he's moving to a second group of people, but it's the same group of people. What do you mean? Well, I mean he does switch to a different group of people, the self-righteous people. But it's the same group of people. Why are they the same group? Because they too are sinners, and that's what chapter two is going to uh, be about. We we spent a little bit of time in it last week. Basically, I, I suggested to you that Paul's using a, a literary structure called diatribe in this section in verses one through sixteen, and and where he he kind of invents a straw man who's seen as one who would be arguing against him, sometimes agreeing with him, sometimes arguing against him. He, he's, he's presenting the argument of this straw man, and then he is attacking it and destroying it. The straw man is a self-righteous man. You know, it starts out in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Oh, you straw man, every one of you who judges... You see, the self-righteous people, they tend to do that, don't they? They judge those wicked, pagan, evil people that are so unlike them. You know, as I was thinking about this, just this week, I was thinking about, you know, how people are pitted against each other in life. It's always like pitted two, you know, two two people groups. I was thinking about how you can have, you know, this team against that team, or this conference against that conference if you're into sports, or it, it could be, uh, this race against that race, this political view against that political view, and and then this section of the country against that section of the country, you know, the northeast liberal progressive wicked idolaters against the Bible Belt people down in the South, and the, the you know the, the people up north are thinking oh, those. Those backwards, he you know, people they're stuck way back in time. They need to get get on the right side of history. A common phrase used today. But the people in the Bible both, they're like, "Oh, those wicked, evil doers up in the northeast and the northwest, and well, that group is pretty big, actually." But those Bible Belters, you know, they are those self-righteous people. That, that's it. They are the self-righteous people who are pointing the fingers like, oh, they deserve the wrath of God. And that's kind of like what Paul's talking about here. In, in the context, Paul's talking about a self-righteous Jewish person. That's a straw man. And he, he makes it very clear that, that he deserves the wrath of God just like those pagan idolaters in chapter 1. And begins to lay out in these 16 verses the principles of God's divine judgment. I suggest to you, we have a great judicial system in our country. I'm so thankful for it. It doesn't always work, but it is a great system. God's system always works. And it's greater. And he has principles of justice. And the first one that we talked about last week was that God judges according to truth. He judges according to the reality of things. Not, not the truth as, you know, the, the gospel or the Bible. It's, in, it's part of it. But the reality of what's true about a person. He knows every person. And, and so in the straw man argument, that's why he says, You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you judge Because you're judging people for doing certain things. And yet he says at the very same time, you're doing those things. Now, they would probably argue, no, no, we're not doing those things. And Paul would probably argue back, oh, yeah, you are. It's in your hearts, in your attitudes. You have the same wickedness residing in you as those wicked idolaters. And so he says, you know, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Uh, Literally, it is according to truth. According to truth. God knows exactly what a person is whether they have a relationship with him or they do not. And if they do not, then they are a sinner and they are condemned before God. That was the first principle. We didn't quite get through that whole principle. We need to pick up in verse 5 in a moment. But in verse 4 he says, Listen, do do you, self-righteous man, woman, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? A stronger terminology, the little translation is, do you uh, look down on, do you despise, do you have contempt for these wonderful characteristics of God, his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience? And it's not really a question, do they? It's an accusation, they do. Why? Or in what way were they looking down on having contempt for these character qualities of God. Well, they were trusting in their own self righteousness. And in doing so, they weren't trusting in the grace and mercy of God for salvation. And it says, if you trust in yourself, you have contempt for God's kindness, His forbearance, His patience, His grace, His mercy. Don't you know, He says, that God has these character qualities for your benefit to lead you to repentance? The self-righteous guys go, what are you talking about repentance? I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I don't need to repent about anything. He is hammering them. Oh, yes, you do because you have the same sin in you as you like to judge others for having. Verse 5, we're, we're picking up in this deep, heavy... Uh, section we see the result of their contempt and failure to understand God's wonderful patience toward them is expressed he says but because of your hard and impenitent or some of the translations and the way I would translate unrepentant heart mean the same thing impenitent unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now remember, who he's talking to the self-righteous person, right? The, the guy that looks good on the outside. Oh, he's such a good guy. They're really good people. You know, if anyone's going to be right with God, they would be right with God. That's how most people would think. But Paul, is what he's doing is he's mentioning again the subject of this first major section in the letter, that people need God's righteousness because they are condemned for their sin, they will remain under the wrath of God and will experience his future wrath unless they repent and they believe. And while the wrath of God is presently re- being revealed, Romans 1.18, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's happening now, but there is also a day coming. A day of final accounting before God. God's wrath will be brought down ultimately, completely, upon these self-righteous people, as well as the pagan idolaters, right? But upon these self-righteous people because of their hard and unrepentant heart. Hard-hearted. Isn't that the world we live in? Such hard-heartedness towards sin, towards people. I mean, the heart can grow like a... It seems like it becomes a stone. It's so calloused. It's unfeeling anymore. And that's what he's saying to this self-righteous person as he is condemning the pagan idolatries. He you have such a hard heart and an unrepentant heart. Important detail that should be noted in this verse, however, is that it is the self-righteous people themselves who store up God's wrath for themselves. Did you you pick up on that? Read it again in verse 5. But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Yes, it's God's wrath. It's the wrath of a holy God coming down upon sinners, right? But it is the people who, because of their choices to choose sin over God, to choose to suppress the truth rather than to receive it, to harden themselves towards God and his word, they are storing up for themselves a full demonstration of his wrath towards sin, did hmm. you get that picture? Storing it up. Storing it up. It's like a, a box. And you keep putting things in the box. You've got to get a bigger box. Because you're storing more up. As you continue to harden your heart toward God, you store up his wrath, he says. And it, it's just building and building and building. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says something very similar about those who are hindering him in preaching the gospel. He's encouraging the church there. And in chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. A filling up of sins is a filling up of God's wrath that is going to be poured out on them at a particular day. And that's what it says. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I personally think that's talking about Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, the great white throne judgment where God will gather all the wicked from the dead and the living and the devils and the demons and Satan, and they will all be thrown in the lake of fire. And they will face an eternity away from the glory of his might and his glorious presence. Horrible, horrible. But the righteous who are found in the book of life will not experience that. So, you know, and just final thought on these first five verses is this: that truth has, truth has serious implications. You know, God is judging according to truth, right? Truth has serious implications. the The person who knows but resists truth does not go away from the encounter with that truth morally neutral. You just don't. Truth resisted, what does it do? It hardens the heart, is what he's saying. It, it makes all it all the more difficult to recognize truth the next time around. Because the next time around, you're more quickly to move to hardness. Story. Resistance and hardness, and so your heart becomes harder and harder. And life is not a game without consequences. So what is, What is? Your end is you know, what we should ask ourselves. What is my end? Will God's wrath be poured out on me at that final day of accounting? Or will I be welcomed into his presence? So I think, ho- hopefully, all of us here would say, well, I'll be welcomed into his presence. I have been delivered from his wrath. And believers should rejoice in that. Every day we should rejoice in that. But... Let's not think that there isn't any application of this for us. Because as we read the word, we're confronted with truth. Are we hardening ourselves to it? It's pointing out something to us we know is going on in our life that's wrong. Do we resist it? And our heart becomes hardened toward it. Next time we hear something, it, our heart gets a little bit harder. And we our hearts can grow hardened as well. Not like the unbeliever. I'm not saying that. But our hearts can become hardened towards God speaking to us through his word, through his people, through our conscience. We can become hardened to it. And what are we doing? I think we're storing up God's discipline. Because God disciplines his children whom he loves. So what's the best thing to do? Don't resist the truth. God knows what's real about you. And he's going to deal with you according to that truth. And I don't say you, I say we. I'm included in that. Okay, principle number two is found in verses 6 through 10. And principle two is God judges according to works. I almost expect to hear a, (gasps) what? We'll explain that, okay, we'll explain that. In in verse six, we find the second of these divine principles. It's it's stated, "He will render to each one according to his deeds or his works." It's the same Greek word. Uh, While the first principle, you know, emphasizes that judgment is based on facts, on truth, this principle emphasizes that God's judgment is based on performance. There's a performance aspect to his judgment. Here's a phrase for you. Profession does not take the place of production. Profession does not take the place of production. Now, this this verse stresses two features of God's judgment. We'll render to each one according to his work. So the first one is that God's judgment is universal, do you notice it? To each one. To each one. It's universal. Secondly, it is based on a certain criteria. It's according to one's works or deeds, what one does. It's universal and it's according to a person's work. Now, you might think, well, that just doesn't sound right. Oh, l- let, me, let me explain to you. It is right. It's repeated throughout the Scripture. I'm going to, get to read some verses to you. Joel will no doubt have them up there for you. There you go. Yeah. Psalm sixty-two, twelve: To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Amen, amen. Yeah. For you will render to each man according to his work. Hmm. Jeremiah seventeen, ten: I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind to give to every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds, Matthew sixteen twenty seven. you know, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And we might think, yeah, that, but that was really Old Testament, wasn't it? I mean, even the gospel, there's more like Old Testament to them, the new testament because the church doesn't start till acts and you know the gospel wasn't being preached until after jesus resurrected from the dead jesus said this before he died oh how wrong you would be if that's your way of thinking and it's paul who wrote in second corinthians five ten. for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good Or evil. We most people conclude the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of believers for their works, what they've done in their body, whether they've honored God or not honored Him. We've all got appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Then we jump to the end of the the Bible, Revelation twenty verse twelve, which is in that great white throne judgment statement. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's our book. <laughs> That's the book we're in as children of God. And, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. It's according to the deeds, works. And then Revelation twenty two twelve, you know, right at the end of our Bibles, like right, Jesus is coming. And he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Whoa. You may say, I, I, I thought Paul clearly taught that a person was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Apart from any works or deeds, didn't he say that in Ephesians two eight and nine? You know, for a grace are you saved through faith? And that not of yours, not, uh, you know, it's it, it's a work of God. It's not according to works, but a uh, grace and faith. And if it was according to works, we just end up boasting about our getting it, you know, our earning it. I would tell you that's exactly right. He. He said that over and over and over again, and so do the other writers of the New Testament. A bit later in in Romans, he's going to declare, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's chapter 3 and verse 20. Well, how can it be then that he declares in our present text that God judges according to a person's works? And the answer to that is that the immediate context is must be understood that Paul's not teaching about how we are made right with God, you know, that what the gospel gives us, right, a right relationship with God. He's not. He's not teaching about that right here. He's not talking about how we are justified, but how God judges the reality of a person's faith. Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean this profession does not take the place of production. Profession doesn't take the place of production. Faith is not a, you know, an abstract quality that stands alone from how a person lives. God judges faith by the effect it makes in how one actually lives. <laughs> there are many places you see this in the New Testament, but I think the, the most clear is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Kind of a rhetorical question. It's not any good. Can that faith save him? Uh, No. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have works. (laughs) Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. This is the very same thing that Paul's addressing here in Romans 2. Faith is not an abstract quality. Profession does not take the place of production. A point in, in the present text that Paul's making is, is not dealing with how a person comes into a right relationship with God, but how having a right relationship with God will, will demonstrate whether you have true faith, genuine faith, how it will be known, how it will be seen, both to others but even to yourselves. God's judgment of people is based on the reality of what their works demonstrates about their faith. And by the way, the pagan idolater and the self-righteous person, two groups pitted against each other but brought into one group by God are sinners and they don't have saving faith. That's what he's saying. Then in 7 through 10, Paul kind of lays out more information about this second principle. He amplifies how God's judgment is according to works by putting all people into two broad classes. Uh, Those who will be rewarded with eternal life and those who will receive the wrath of God. And he uses a literary structure that is called chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm, it's based off the Greek letter key, which is an X, which is the first letter in in the name, or the title Christ. So it's just a Greek letter key, but it's an X. And so it is an A, B, B, A layout. A, B, B, A. The A's are connected, and the B's are connected. And that's the structure that he's, Using in these verses, 7 through 10. It's just his way of drawing attention to the important truth that he's making about God's judgment being according to a person's works. Now, in in verses 7 through 8, we read about, first of all, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. That's the A group. Okay, the A group. And they are set over against those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. That's the B group. Did you get that? A, B group? Let's read these verses altogether, together, 7 through 10. See if you follow it with me. To those by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So there's A, and then there's B, right? And now in 9 and 10, he's going to reverse it. It's going to be B, and then A. There will be tribulation and distress for every being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's the B group. And now the A group. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. So these descriptions help explain what Paul said about God judging according to works. The first group, he says, dedicated their lives toward the qualities that are helpful for other people, right? By a commitment to doing good, they're demonstrating their desire to live in accordance with a life that finds its source only in God not earning a relationship with God, they find the source for living a God kind of life. They find it in God. The the second group is quite different. Their lives are so controlled by selfish ambition and resistance, the truth that it is life devoid of relationship with God. That's what he's laying out. And the end for these two groups is significantly different in seven and eight. First, he says God will give eternal life to the A group. But for the second group, the B group, there's a certainty of wrath and fury, right? So people's actions, their works, their deeds, not only demonstrate whether they have, a, have genuine faith, but they are also directly connected to their end. Did you get that? This is deep, this is heavy. Stick with it, stick with me, stick with the scripture. I mean, it's important to understand this. So people's actions demonstrate whether they have genuine faith. It does. It's connected to one's end. It is. And some may suggest that Paul was saying that if people actually pursue the right things in life, glory and honor and mortality, they'll be rewarded for their pursuit, right. They'll be rewarded for their pursuit with eternal life, apart from faith. But that suggestion is invalid. And why is it invalid? The apostle doesn't teach contradictory truths. If you didn't know that already, you should. He's the one that says that you can't be saved from keeping the law, from works, right? He's made that makes that very clear in his writings. So it can't be saying here that you can get eternal life by doing good. It's really beside the point to interpret these verses to mean that God would actually give eternal life to those who persist in doing good. It's better to understand that only those who have genuine faith, a right relationship with God through faith, are even capable of desiring, let alone persisting in doing good. Paul say that there are none who do good, not even one, Romans 3.12. But the desire to do good is impossible for those who don't know God. They won't persist in it unless there's a personal advantage or benefit to them. Then in verses 9 and 10, the reverse order is found. Again, it's the B group first and then the A group. So the the, the the first group of evil doers who live for God and then those who do good. But in addition to that... He switches the order of the phrases. He begins with their end and then refers to their behavior. In the, in the seven and eight, was he talked about the behavior and then their end. He reverses that as well. This is kind of just brilliant literary structure by Paul that I think goes over most of our heads. But if you really get it, it's like, oh man, Paul was brilliant by God's direction. And it would catch the attention of the readers then, it should catch our attention now because it is driving home these principles. So, the, the, the fact that he puts the end first emphasizes the result rather than the people. In the first seven and eight, he emphasized more the people, not the result. So, for the B group, there will be what? Tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil. Notice this, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. So, it's ironic to me that while the Jews were the first to receive the blessings of the gospel, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. They were the first to receive it. Jesus said it, it's from the Jews, it comes first to the Jews. He, he told his disciples, go only to the Jews And then it was to broaden out after that. So it's ironic, isn't it, that while they were the first to receive the blessings of the gospel, it will be that way with recompense for their sin. It will be first to the Jew and then to the Greek. What awaits the B group? Well, nothing but pain and suffering and that for all eternity. For the a group, there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And likewise, this too applies to the Jew first and then to the Greek. This is a recurring phrase. So what a radically different end for those whose faith is genuine, which produces good works as a result. This pursuit of a life that is pleasing to God honoring to him and what he is doing in them. Such people, he indicates, will be participants in the glorious future that awaits all those who have a right relationship with God. What what is that? They will rejoice in the glory and honor that belongs only to God. And they will just dwell in the peace, he says, that God gives them through faith in Christ glory and honor and peace so God's judgment principles first according to truth second according to works, deeds understand that in its context otherwise you'll be confused otherwise you might mislead people if you grab a verse out of its context and say see God judges according to deeds too principle three. God judges impartially, and that's verses 11 through 16. So really, verse 11 is kind of the end of that previous section, verses 6 through 10. You know, it's kind of the end of that, but it's also the beginning of this next section, and in verse 11 is recorded the third principle of judgment, for God shows no partiality. Now, this is the opposite way that people usually make judgment, isn't it? Now, think, think about it with me. People judge based on things like race, hmm, connections, or economic or whatever it is, politics, that goes on all the time, wealth, intelligence, degrees. But God, he says, judges impartially impartially. He doesn't consider nationality. Don't let this shock you. God is not partial to Americans, to the United States, to be more specific. God does not consider race. He's not particularly focused on white people or black people or red people or any other color of people. He judges impartially. God does not consider education. He's not partial to college graduates or geniuses. God does not consider economic station. He's not partial to the rich or the poor. God does not consider religion as such. Uh, uh, he's not partial to Presbyterians or to Baptists or to Lutheran or Methodists or Plymouth Brethren Assemblies. He's, he's just impartial in his judgment. God's judgments are impartial. I mean, it can't be more than clear than that. And this is a theme that runs throughout the scripture as well. So let me read you some verses. Joel will have them up for you. Deuteronomy seven uh, ten seventeen says, For the Lord your God is a God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. Second Chronicles 19:7 says now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you be careful what you do for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes Acts 10, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God chose no partiality. This is in connection with this vision that he had. God lowering a blanket down with all kinds of food, including unclean foods on it, and God telling Peter in this vision, eat. And Peter's like, no way, Lord. No unclean foods ever passed these lips. Uh, uh, Peter, eat. No, no, I, I, I just can't do that. Peter, eat. And then the conversion goes away, and there's a knock, knock, knock. Some Gentiles were downstairs looking for a guy by the name of Peter so they could bring him to the house of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, because Cornelius had a vision from God saying, go get this guy because he can tell you how to have a right relationship with God. And Peter, it clicked with Peter. God wasn't just talking about food, he was talking about people. God is not partial to Jews over Gentiles. Wow, blow his mind. Should blow ours as well. Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same to them. This is so to your slaves. Do the same to your slaves and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours. He's in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3.25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. That's the previous principle, right? According to deeds. And there is no partiality. And First 1 Peter 1.17, if you call on God as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God is impartial in his judgment. God doesn't judge based on outward associations of people. But what he does consider is the amount of light that has been revealed to people. The statement that God does not show favoritism or partiality kind of raises the problem of seeing the differences between Jewish people and Gentile people or Greek people. And we know this from reading the Old Testament that God's history with the Jews was different than it was with all all the other people, right? To the Jews, he gave a revelation of himself uh, in, in the scriptures and in the law, and that wasn't given to the Gentiles. And in this section, the apostle shows that the Gentiles actually do have a law that was given to them. And it's not the same as what the Jews said, but it was still a law that God had given them. So let's read these verses. Chapter 2, starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men's heart by Jesus Christ. So once again, Paul, in these verses, identifies two groups of people, right? really the same two, group, uh, two groups of people, but in this context, he, the two groups are those without the law and those who are under the law. Well, the Gentiles were without the law in the sense that they had no responsibility to obey the commands and ordinances given to Israel through Moses. How could they? They hadn't received those ordinances and laws, right? They were given to the Jews. Israel, on the other hand, was under the law why? Because they were the recipients of God's revelation of himself through Moses, the great lawgiver. Gi- so Paul makes it clear that God's judgment is impartial by showing that people are judged based on the amount of light that they have received. Gentiles don't perish because they lack the law which the Jews possessed, but because they don't live up to the law that they have received. Verse twelve again. For all have sinned, for all who have sinned without the law, Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And the law is clearly a reference to the Mosaic law, right? The Mosaic law that God had given the Jews. But on the other hand, he says, "All who have sinned under the law—that's the Jews, because they received it, they were under it—they will be judged by the law." Hmm. This. Clearly, is reference to Jews, but it doesn't mean that they will be exonerated because they had received the law. In fact, they will be judged because they failed to keep it, is what he's saying. The Mosaic legislation will not play a part in the judgment of those who have never heard it, who have never seen it. That doesn't mean they won't be judged. They will be, by another law. In contrast, the Jews who had received the law, they will be judged for their failure to keep it. Now, Paul continues this thought, saying, uh, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And whoop, here again, right, here again is a statement that may seem contradictory with justification by faith alone. Again, we see this in light of the context, right? The context. Paul's point is that the self-righteous Jew is simply a hearer of the law, not a doer of the law. Therefore, he, he will not be seen as righteous before God. And what needs to be added is that no one could ever keep the law perfectly as to be considered a righteous before God. People, people, people in general, not just that self-righteous Jew, but people in general, self-righteous people especially, They generally have a tendency to substitute passive agreement uh, for action. They say that they believe something, but they don't live like they do. You ever run into that? Certainly with others, right? How about with yourself? But God does not pronounce people righteous because their doctrine is correct. Or they say they believe certain truths... Only those who are doers, right? Only those who are doers, he says, will be right before him. And they only do what is right because they do have genuine faith and they have a right right relationship with the Lord. So in 14 and 15, Paul is particularly drilling down on his Jewish audience the importance of actually doing what the law said, not to earn a right relationship with God, but point out that they failed to keep it. So, Paul's intention in these two verses is to to show the Jewish people in particular that the Gentiles actually did have a law given to them. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, meaning the Mosaic law, do by nature what that law requires, They are a law, not the Mosaic Law, a different law, right? A different law. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the Mosaic Law. They show the work of the law, Mosaic Law, actually, is written on their hearts. What does this all mean? What are the things that are written on their hearts? Well, clearly, it can't be the exact specifics of the Ten Commandments or the... Pentateuch, but rather, what is it referring to? The moral and ethical requirements of the Mosaic Law that all people would acknowledge. I mean, Paul is insisting really that the basic requirements of law are stamped on the human heart. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. And so his character, his moral morals, his ethics are stamped on our hearts because we come from him. We are you know, his children in that general sense. And even though there are differences in customs and laws among the nations of the world, there generally is a common denominator between people groups that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And even, even though people can harden themselves to those things, it's still there it's still there. Why? Because they're created in the image of God, and God has stamped his law, his moral and ethical law, on the human heart. So Paul identifies how the law works in the hearts of such people when he says, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. So the conscience We should know this. The conscience is not an outward norm to be obeyed like the Mosaic law. But it was an inner witness that judges whether or not someone was doing right or wrong, good or evil. In one case, the conscience, you know, prompts them. And then it warns them. And then it condemns them. But if they do right, then it affirms them, it excuses them as the meaning. If, they, if they'll follow with their conscience, their heart, where the law has been stamped by God, if they follow it, then it will affirm them. So Paul's explaining in these two verses that the function of the conscience among people without the law, well, it was acting in parallel to the law that was given to the Jewish people. The law given to the Gentiles, the law given to the Jews. And so the final verse in the section gets to the point of what Paul's been saying all along, that God's righteous judgment will come to all because God's judgments are impartial. They're according to truth, they're according to deeds, and they're impartial. And did you notice that God the Father is seen as the judge in this verse, but the agent or the focus of his judgment is on Jesus Christ? Read that verse again verse 16 on that day just like the previous section and then on that day when according to my gospel god judges the secrets of men by jesus christ Two, quickly two specific features are there there's a reference to the secret or hidden things of the heart right and and secondly that his judgment is according to the gospel of jesus christ now, the first of those two things stresses that not only the overt actions of people will be judged by God, but actually the hidden things, the secret things. Whether it is secret actions, hidden actions, or secret thoughts and attitudes. And that will be judged. Why? Because God knows everything, right? He, he knows all the facts, the truth about people. So, that, so things may be hidden to others, And I think all of us do this. We try to hide things from people. This is just too embarrassing for us to really reveal ourselves. But we're revealed naked and bare before God. (laughs) Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And Psalm 90 and verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So God knows all. He sees all. The second of these two features does not mean that the gospel is actually the standard of judgment, but that righteous judgment by God is an essential element of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the Christian church is abandoning. And I say Christian church in a broad sense, you know. It's like, we, we don't want to talk about sin and judgment and wrath and all that stuff. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to be told that they're bad. They want to be told that they're good and God has a wonderful plan for their life. Their best life is now and all that. God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And I, I'm missing out on the healthy part of that. I, I'm sure of that. But God wants me to be wealthy? Come on. This is an essential element of the gospel, that God's... Judges people for their sin. Well, that's what he's saying. Then the wrath of God comes upon those who do not obey the gospel. And, and, and what people do with the gospel will determine whether they will face the final judgment of his wrath or they will be received into his presence to enjoy it forever. So, landing the plane right now. Okay, Buckle up. We're landing. Turn your cell phones off. Mm-hmm. So in this section again, Paul has stressed the principles of God's judgment. What are they? That God judges according to truth. Secondly, according to works, And thirdly, that it's impartial. It's without partiality. It's based on the amount of light that a person has received. And finally, it's got to be understood that God's righteous judgments are part and parcel of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But one final note, Paul's attachment to the the, the, the gospel was pretty profound. Notice what he said? It should be profound, actually, for all of us who have a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. But notice how he included in verse 16 the words, my gospel. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul wasn't confused. He didn't suddenly begin to think that the good news is about me. He knew that the good news was God's good news and that it was surrounding his son, Jesus Christ. What he means is the gospel was absolute importance to him. That's why he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. It was everything to him. It should be to us. And it is striking that some of his harshest words in his writings were for those who would twist the good news for some personal benefit. Some could be wealth or it could be power or whatever it was. I mean, the gospel remained at the very center of his ministry. Maybe you can remember to the Corinthian church when he wrote that he was resolved to know nothing among them except Christ and him Crucified. So, in a day when so much preaching has sold its birthright, in a sense, for a pot of psychological porridge, the needs for renewed focus on the essential gospel has never been greater, really. That's why we're doing the way the master conferences. That's why we're repeating it, because we need to get the gospel out. The no, gospel is not. Always going out by God's people, they're, they're sharing an incomplete message or a perverted message because they refuse to include a message of God's wrath towards sinners. The gospel should be our gospel. God has if you didn't know this, he's entrusted it to us. Not for a benefit, for the benefit of the lost to hear and to be made right with God. So let's make sure, first of all, that we understand it. That's why we're taking the time to go through this. We understand it, and then let's make sure that we're faithfully declaring it. Lord, we are thankful for the gospel. Thank you to Lord that you are who you are and that you have principles of judgment that are in accordance with your character. You judge based on what you know to be true. You judge uh, based on what a person does. and, and, And we understand what we do for you is only because of what you've done for us. But what we do is a demonstration of whether we do have a relationship with you. Thank you for that clear message out of this passage today. And thank you also that your judgment is impartial. In a world in which... People are anything but impartial, in judgment, in desires, in, well, in everything. Thank you that you are not that way. You look at a person, you see them as lost and in need of a savior. Red or yellow, black or white, they are precious in your sight. To help us to see them the same way. Help us to share this beautiful gospel message with them. We ask this for the glory of our Savior. Amen.